Thank you for joining us again. We are in week three of recovering our Sunday school format, our adult education school discipleship. Our kids are upstairs, and over the past three weeks, we've been taking a more intensive kind of lecture orientation to our time together, uh, just because we're talking about some fairly big topics, Christianity and modern America, and how the shaping of the modern self and how we think and conceive of ourselves um, as individuals, as people, how our culture has taken, taken a certain path uh, to, uh, on that definition and how that's impacting all of life. So we looked at the definition of the self in our first week. Second week, we considered how this is kind of reshaping American approaches to religion, including Christianity, and we specifically thought about the evangelical church. And this week, we're going to talk about politics. Now, I am not taking questions. <laughs> Part of it is, I don't know how this happened, but I'm talking about politics today, and then we're preaching on Romans 13. So if you don't like this one, you're definitely not going to like the second one, okay? Um, so you may want to go to the Jags game or... <laughs> or go somewhere else for church today, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about politics a lot today. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say. There's things that it doesn't say. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to start uh, uh, getting into this. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we come this morning, and we recognize um, all the stuff that we bring. Um, but yet it's you who can sort this out. It's in your light that we see light. And so help us to be renewed in our minds, to think your thoughts after you. And so direct us and guide us. Help us to understand our cultural moment uh, today and all the political sphere that accompanies that. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I am grateful to you for joining us over these past few weeks just because we are attempting to get things rehabilitated and resuscitated. And so all our classes upstairs are full with our kids and we're excited about that. It's a privilege to be serving them again. If you remember, it was two and a half years in which we took a break uh, from these normal rhythms. And so it's wonderful to have them rehabilitated. One of my favorite things about having our uh, School of Discipleship back operational is just the social things that happen on the front end and then in between services. Um, and so I uh, always hate having to cut you short. I have been going long on these because there's a lot to say, uh, and I'm sorry for that. In future weeks, we'll be going to a less heavy lecture format, okay? Uh, so know that this is not the norm, but uh, this is where we've been for the past few weeks just due to these topics. But we have been considering uh, the modern approach to the self, and today we're specifically looking at how that impacts our approach to politics, okay? So we've looked at the long and slow process, long and slow, hear that, in which the definition of the self has been transformed in Western society. Now, the way that we're experiencing that right now feels fairly violent, okay? But that violence is not due to uh, anything that's really happened new, okay? Really, over the past 120 years, there's been a group of uh, philosophers and poets and different people who've been directing us towards thinking about the self in different ways. So, uh, whereas we once defined what a human being was and what it meant to be a flourishing human being, we received that definition from an external transcendent source, 
especially in America, this was from the Bible. Today, this is now being psychologically defined. That is the individual's conviction and their own perception of who they are and what they want to be. And so we do live in a world, in a culture, in a society where nothing is necessary and absolutely everything is possible. You're the captain of your own ship. You get to define that ship the way that you want it to be. There's no external definition pressing in upon you. And so to really be authentic, if you're really going to be a human being, according to our culture standards, if you're going to, then you must be free and you must be real. You must live your truth. Okay, that's the phrase that you will hear kind of in popular culture. Live your truth. Now, when I describe these things to you and give you the philosophy behind them, it's not that most people walking down the street that you drive to next to in Jacksonville imbibe this philosophy consciously. Rather, they kind of have drunk this philosophy and they live it out in a set of intuitions and practices. Okay, so you're not going to find anybody to debate with about these things necessarily. I'm trying to describe to you a pattern of the way that people live. All right, and so this, the advent of this psychologized self impacts everything. And it's not just people outside, it also impacts you and I. Okay, we have to recognize humbly that we are cultural creatures. All right, and we've been stewed in this pot as well. Now that doesn't mean that you're just condemned. It does mean that we need to be self-aware and reflective and conscious, okay? That we need to look at ourselves and we need to say, hey, what does the Bible say uh, and how does it help us navigate this moment? Um, and so particularly we need to talk about politics because it's a major uh, thing in our social life and, uh, and the politics of everyone, including religious people, is impacted by this psychologized self. Um, and so that's where we're going to go today. Several important questions to ask and to answer. Now, you may have a question on here uh, as you look at this that's not being asked and answered. You can send me an email, um, and, uh, and I may get back to you in a couple weeks. How about that? Uh, no, I'd be happy to interact with you. I know these things are big things. It's also just a massive topic. Uh, so know that I'm talking about politics more than I have since I studied politics as a, as a student in school. So this is where I had to limit it today. First question, how is political participation changing in a secularized society? We just talked about the definitions of the modern self and how that has transformed uh, the definition of what it means to be a human being from that external transcendent source. So, okay, so it no longer comes from the outside, but rather it's coming up from within, from the sphere of the internal uh, psychological conviction. So what has happened as this has taken place is what we have is a stripping of the world of, uh, of meaningful forms of transcendence, okay? Transcendence is just simply where we find meaning and truth and significance. So rather than meaning, truth, and significance being found in an external definition defined by, by namely by God, we're now to find that sense of significance, meaning, and truth from within ourselves. Now we know enough about human beings that when we're left in that situation, does it work out? It doesn't work out too well. When we're left to ourselves like this, we're left hungry, okay? Now this is really nothing new, all right? Solomon says it like this, that there's nothing new under the sun. 
And he's exactly right. When we do strip away the forms of transcendence that were available to us through Christianity, the ways of transcending the world and all the raw realities of suffering, of death, of sin and failure, when we strip away the ways in which we are able to deal with that through a Christian faith, human beings are left to try to locate transcendence somewhere else. And so we tend to go to a few kind of routinized things in order to get those senses of transcendence. All right, this is where there's nothing new under the sun. Where do we go? Sex, that's one, okay? We talked about that a lot the first week, all right? We go to sex, we go to appearance, uh, we go to sexuality, anything kind of deriving around human sexuality. We're going to try to find transcendence there. Second area, entertainment and experiences. Okay, we're going to try to transcend the mundaneness of life by entertaining ourselves to death. Third, power, and that includes political power, okay? And that's where we're going to focus today. And so we are on this quest to try to locate transcendence somewhere because we've really stripped the world of most of it, especially uh, as we talk about secular culture. Now, David Zoll, he's a popular author. He wrote a book called Seculosity. It's really interesting. Uh, and he points out there that we've transferred the zeal that formerly belonged to religion. We have now transferred that to all kinds of other things, including politics. And so this is broadly what we see happening. And so people ask, why is the temperature so elevated around political conversations? Why? It's because we've transferred something to politics that used to be found in faith, okay? That used to be located in religious orientation. And we've loaded politics with something that it can't possibly sustain. And so while some feel increasingly disenfranchised from the political part of our society, some people feel increasingly empowered and increasingly supportive of it. And so it's critical for us to recognize that the fervor and the passion and the zeal that many secular people, or let me say that many secularly minded people find in politics. And when I say secularly minded, this is where I'm gonna make you mad. I'm not just talking about people who are not Christians. You can have a secular mind and be a Christian, okay? And uh, my fear is, is that in part of the flattening of the world and in part of the stripping of the world of transcendence, that many Christians are tempted to take the bait. We're tempted to take the bait and become overly political in the same way that we see our secular counterparts doing. So this is one of the transformations that is taking place. Okay, kind of in the flattening of the world, politics is becoming increasingly important. There's increasing zeal, there's increasing passion about it, and it's not going to slow down. Okay, it's only going to heat up further. All right, second question. I know everybody's just happy and thrilled right now. Why is good political discourse so difficult in the public square today? Have you noticed that? Several years ago, I got off Facebook because I was tired of it. No more social media. <laughs> Couldn't take it anymore. It was just a death of discourse. The ability to interact in a civil way um, 
and it was just so frustrating. And, uh, and after a few attempts to have reasonable conversation, I recognized that was not going to happen <laughs> anymore and that this is not the right forum for it. And you've all experienced that as well. You've seen it in all kinds of different ways, whether a conversation with a neighbor um, or a conversation on, uh, involved in social media. I sat down on a plane next to somebody one time, and they asked me where I went to school, and I told them. They said, what did you major in? I said, political science. He said, no, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister. He said, well, those are two things I don't talk about, religion and politics. He turned and went back to his book and didn't say a word, <laughs> a word to me the rest of the time, okay? Uh, you know, he was at least just avoiding the, the conflict. But it is elevated. Uh, discourse about political things is very hard. And there's two reasons that we can kind of start to look at, all right? There are other things involved in this as well, but let's just talk about two. First, there's no shared moral framework. As a Christian, this is one of the things that you just have to recognize about your context, okay? This is not an argument for that context, it's just explanatory. This is the world that you're living in, that no longer in our culture do we have a shared moral framework. Okay, even though many people inside of our culture over the last several hundred years, including many of the founding fathers, were not Christians, there was a shared moral framework that was inherited from Christianity. Okay, so there was agreement about certain rights and certain wrongs. That is what has broken down today. Okay, and so what has happened is now that right and wrong, your moral values are simply taste and preferences. That there really is one chief virtue and ethic, and it's the word that we call equality. Okay? That there's really one moral value that our society is going to uphold, and it is equality. Now, it's important to get the definition that's working in our society about equality. There's two parts to it. Okay, First, equality is the freedom to express yourself. Okay, this is that expressive individualism, the freedom to define yourself and express yourself as you so desire. And secondly, and this is the important piece to, to understand about equality today, that it's also the right to be publicly recognized as to who you want to express yourself as. So it's not simply the freedom to do as you want to do, but it's the freedom to be recognized, publicly validated for doing what you want to do. Okay, so what all of this means is that there's no strong shared moral framework informing our political values beyond this virtue of equality. Now, can equality bear all the weight that's needed for the moral reasoning inside of a society? No, okay? And many people recognize this, secular and Christian both, that equality doesn't give us everything that we need to orient to all the questions that we have to answer. Okay? For instance, when we only emphasize equality, it brings us into conflict with some of the other traditional values that are enshrined in our Constitution, freedom of speech. But if equality is defined as a person's right to express themselves and also be recognized, we can begin to impinge on freedom of speech when we say, hey, you're not allowed to say certain things in public because they hurt the other person and it becomes labeled as hate speech, okay? So you see how the conflict is, is working? You've, you've seen some of this in the media, no doubt. 
Um, and so we find that with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, where we start to have conflicts between this new exaltation of the virtue of equality and how we're defining it, and also with some of our traditional values. So the radicalization of equality, ironically, fights against diversity, okay? Because equality's one goal, as it's currently being defined, is to allow everything to go, and also to allow everyone to be validated, okay? Except for those who are in disagreement. So, uh, additionally, with the exaltation of equality as defined, those who venture into disagreement with this agenda are quickly labeled as phobic, or the new word that we've all learned this year, they are canceled. This is not just happening to Christians, by the way. It happened to the author of Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling canceled by some of her, her, her peers and counterparts, okay? Fascinating to watch how it works, okay? And it's important to observe those things, not in order to get angry, but just to say, how exactly is this coming together? And what this all reflects is that in the American psyche, there is something deeply religious about us, okay? Something deeply religious and fanatical and zealous. And we have a Puritan-like zeal to reform and to conform society. The issue that we're facing today is that has been detethered from God, okay? And so we have this Puritan-like zeal in which we want to conform everybody and we want to see everything reformed. And so when there is disagreement, one of the most unfortunate things that's going on is that the way disagreement is dealt with, because there is no shared moral platform, is simply to demonize your opponent. That is happening on all sides of the equation. Okay? It is the way that people are handling disagreement now in the absence of a moral framework, there is no substantial debate. You know, if you look back in our history, it's really interesting. In the 1840s, really starting in the 1820s, there was a conversation happening between Christians about American slavery. It was a conversation between Christians about the rightness of how we were enslaving a certain class of people and certain race of people. Now that debate broke into open disagreement in a war that uh, plagued our country, unfortunately. But it started as a conversation around a shared moral framework attempting to work out what did it mean. That led to a war because they couldn't agree. But that was when there was a shared consensus, all right? Now we lack that. All right, and so it puts us in a dangerous and pretty hard spot. All right, and that is one of the reasons that you're having difficulty having any type of moral conversation with people. Now, one of the things that happens is that some people respond to that by wanting to just yell, get angry, I will overpower you, you know, and then you will agree with me. Does that work? No. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. Ask your children. <laughs> they, may, they may conform for the moment, but they didn't agree with you, you know. Um, this, is, this is not a way ahead, all right? And so we have to find other tactics for trying to engage. 
So that's reason number one, no shared moral framework. Reason number two, politics are being driven by controversy, sound bites, and clicks. All right, um, I'm just summarizing some stuff for you here. I don't think it's uh, really too difficult to understand, but this is not the uh, area of expertise for me. Uh, but it is important to recognize that the revolution in technology is impacting the world we live in, all right? And so what we have are, are modern uh, social factors, technological factors contributing to the breakdown of the ability to talk with one another well. So modern forms of communication, internet, social media, 24-hour news, uh, politicians have discovered that controversy fuels attention. What's the best way to get a bunch of hits? Say something ridiculous, okay? <laughs> Say something cartoonish, bombast, and guess what? Everybody jumps on it. I'm not pointing fingers, but I think our recent history, you know, displays a lot of this, all right? So flamboyance generates clicks, generates attention, all right? And, uh, and our politicians have discovered that. One of the most interesting things, uh, living in Washington and knowing many people who worked in the political system, um, is uh, you would regularly see politicians step up to the microphones and, uh, and use a lot of bombast. And then they would step away, and I would ask my friends, you know, what's that person like in public? And they'd say, oh, he's completely reasonable. <laughs> but he has to do that for his voter base. Or he does it for the fringe part of the voter base that he needs to hold on to. That's the more cynical side of it, you know, something like that. And so, guys, it's just an incredibly complicated moment, and the technology uh, adds to that. And so, an equal, equally difficult part of this uh, is search engines. You have search engines on your computers, on your phones, and you know what? Sometimes they know what you've talked about. Sometimes they know, and all the time, they know what you've searched for, all right? They know what articles you read. And so, guess what articles and guess what resources it then feeds you? Things that match up with what you've already looked at, Okay. And uh, so this is another feature of modern society that's fairly dangerous and fairly toxic, that the news you start to see becomes an echo chamber. The things that you have reported to you agree with what you already think, or perhaps push you further, okay? It's hard to find media outlets, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't use that phrase, um, <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say fair and balanced. I'm not taking a shot at anybody. <laughs> it's, it's hard to find media outlets where there is substantive conversation going on, okay? And uh, so we tend to get uh, highly biased media reporting. We tend to only see uh, things that uh, confirm our own bias. And so this doesn't help us when it comes to trying to have conversations and appreciate other people and their views, even when we really disagree. Um, and, uh, and so, guys, it's those two things that really contribute, I think, to the difficulty of talking well. Now, there's a lot we can say, and we're going to go into this last question. How does the Christian respond? We're going to do this all in 12 minutes. Principle number one is that we engage in politics, but we recognize that politics are not ultimate. If there's one thing that I want you to get out of today and that I want you to leave the worship service with and that I also want to cause you to uh, swell today and ride out on a cloud is this statement right here. As Christians, we do engage in politics. We love our neighbors. 
We want the best for them. We believe this is God's world, and this world is accountable to God. So we really do need to engage in the political sphere. Politics is just simply the accumulation of people together needing to have a common social order. There is no such thing as human life without politics. You got to have it. Anarchy doesn't work. But the one thing that differentiates the Christian from a secularly minded person is that we know that politics are not ultimate. The secular mind is finding transcendence in political power, in political ascendancy and winning. It's why people are euphoric when their political party takes over the White House. After those first hundred days, it tends to tamp down a little bit because everything's much the same, unfortunately. But as a Christian, we're not surprised by that. And we also recognize that politics are not ultimate. Because you see, the gospel is actually an incredibly political message. You know that little phrase that Paul talks about in Romans 10? We can believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That was a political statement in his world. And it was a statement because there was only one person in the Roman Empire who was called Lord. Caesar. That was the profession of faith. Caesar is Lord. It was called a gospel, an announcement that Caesar has taken the throne and he is Lord. It was good news. He had established the peace of Rome across the nations of, uh, of the Mediterranean. And so Paul enters on biblical grounds and says, no, Caesar is the ruler, he's the emperor, and Jesus is Lord. Okay? Jesus, and John says it like this in Revelation 1, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And there are times in the church when we talk about Jesus and we can talk about him in such a way where it has become kind of Gnostic and Platonic, where he's the Lord of our hearts. Jesus is not satisfied with that, okay? He is Lord of your heart, but he is the ruler of the kings of earth. When he ascends to God's right hand, he takes up public office. This world belongs to Jesus, every square inch of it. He claims it as his own, okay? And as Christians, we need to rehabilitate our notion of his authority and his kingship and his session and rule over all things. That's one of the um, kind of weaknesses that we've inherited over the last 200 years is more of a spiritualized version of Jesus being king of the heart when we really need this robust affirmation that Jesus is Lord of the world. And the world is accountable to him, the world answers to him, that all political powers are actually subject to him, even if they don't recognize it. And guys, that's what we believe. And this is why Christianity is not just one convenient option that happens to work for us. No, we're saying something else. This is not a preference or a taste, that this is reality, that this is God's world, and God's king is Jesus, and he's ruling over that world. Right? And this is the robust Christian affirmation that allows us to engage in politics, but also not to be overcome by it. All right? Because we need to do that. It's 2012. I was serving at a church in Arlington, Virginia, and it was the day after the election, and we were actually, or it was the week after the election, and we were actually at church on Sunday. This may make some of you mad, but there were large portions of my church that were elated with the outcome of that election, or at least happy, and there were portions of the church that were depressed. 
And the only word I really had for all of them was get over it. (laughs) All of you, you're all putting way too much into this. If you think the answer to America was in that candidate winning, then you were mistaken. If you think the answer to America's problem was in this candidate who won, then you're mistaken. Neither one, neither one is the answer that those candidates must ultimately be oriented to Jesus, and we're a long ways from that, okay? And so we have to recognize the, uh, the kind of relativity of, of our political engagement. Now, second, we engage with respect, principle number two. Um, Peter lays this out for us. Let's just turn there briefly. First Peter 2. This is pretty bald and plain. Peter writes this of the man who executed him. Keep that in mind. (laughs) Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Stiff stuff. If you were to kind of take your scorecard, how are you doing on that? How do you do with honoring the emperor? Do you speak in respectful ways? Do you recognize the incredible weight of that office? Do you recognize the burdens that are carried there? As much as you may not like or as much as you may disagree, because I certainly have my disagreements, but are we showing proper honor for those who, as we'll see in Romans 13, God has established by his providence in those places? All right? So we engage with respect. And I think as Christians, we need to think through this pretty hard. God lays claim on your speech. He lays claim on your speech about your political rulers. All right? I didn't say it. He did. You're to honor them. Okay? And if you don't want to take him seriously in that, then you really need to question whether you're taking your discipleship seriously. Because if you can't be contradicted by Scripture, if you can't hear something contrary to what you already think, then you really need to ask yourself some more fundamental questions about your faith, okay? Christianity is not an echo chamber where we just get to come in and have everything validated. We should regularly and routinely be challenged by God. We should be boxed around. We should find things in Scripture that we don't particularly like. And I'll confess to you, there are things this week in Romans 13 I don't particularly like. But my job is not to give you what I like, (laughs) is to be challenged by this outside external word that we're called to conform ourselves to. So we engage with respect. Principle three, we pray. My first week at, uh, at Christ Church, um, I stood up to lead the prayers. This was 2014, March 5th, I believe. And I prayed for the then president, President Obama, and there was a literal gasp in the congregation. And everybody was thinking, oh, we've hired us a Yankee from the North. It's a liberal. <laughs> I was asked why, and, um, and I explained that this was just simply obedience to Scripture. This is what Timothy says to do. I had one member of our congregation come up to me a few weeks later and just say, I want you to know how angry I was with you that day. I mean, I'm just getting settled in. I'm like, where are we going? <laughs> you know, what's, what's about to happen? I'm angry with you, or I was angry with you. I said, but then I was studying First Peter, 
And it was one of the most beautiful and humble moments I still have ever had with someone. I said, I recognized I was wrong. I was wrong. I don't particularly care for a president. I don't like his policies. And I said, I don't either. He said, but I recognize that in my animosity, I was not willing to obey a basic command that comes from God and submit myself to him. So this is what we do. We pray. We show respect. We pray. We know it's not ultimate. Number four, we form a meaningful counterculture. And this is particularly uh, when we find ourselves in a challenging moment where we don't agree with everything. Um, One of the things that's really helpful uh, for American Christians um, is to get outside of our own cultural context and to consider the stories of other Christians from the broader scene. Okay? Uh, serving a few years in the Anglican Church, this was really helpful because I particularly was able to intersect with African Christians who did not live in the political majority, especially as the church grew. Okay? Places like Uganda and Rwanda, where there was significant political disturbances. All right? And so it was interesting. It's also interesting to pull back into history because this little Roman church that Paul addressed was really little in the 50s, okay, not the 1950s, in the 50s, literally, it was small, all right? It was not a a dominant place, and they probably could have never dreamed of Christianity becoming the the institutionalized religion of the Roman Empire, all right? It had been hard for them to even get their minds around that. And so what these Christians started to do was just respond to needs that were in their area as to wrongs and injustices that they found, beautiful example of this and that there was a, a customary Roman practice when a baby was, wasn't wanted. It wasn't aborted, but it was taken out of the city walls and left on a hillside to die of exposure. And overnight, a young child would, would die. And so the Christians began going out onto those hillsides and collecting those children and fostering them, raising them, okay? Bringing them into Christian homes, giving them Christian names, raising them as Christians, all right? Now, it's a very romantic story, but the thing is, it was a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hard work, uh, and it certainly wasn't always successful, and it wasn't always pretty, and it's suggestive to us of things that we need to be doing inside of an increasingly secularized culture where we're not in political ascendancy. It is interesting, the Right to Life campaign is actually making progress, And they attribute that progress basically uh, to uh, videos and photographs of actual children in the womb. But you'll see this in modern media, and some people are really losing their minds about it, but that the right to life, the pro-life movement, is actually gaining ground in American culture. This is at the same time that so many other things are up for grabs, and so it makes really no sense at all. But we can't simply be preoccupied with the votes in Washington as Christians, all right? That is something that we can look at and that we need to figure out because like the Right to Life campaign, that's been somewhat successful in that. It's been a long, hard fight, but it's a good one. But there are other things that we can do that are political activity that are not officially political activity. Doesn't involve going to Washington, okay? And that's where these early Christians help us see It's seeking to be just people, seeking to be merciful people, seeking to uphold God's values inside of God's world, okay? Those kinds of people. And so, guys, that's a start about how we navigate the current moment where politics is really a mess. 
profound disagreement, no shared moral framework for how to have discussions, where politics is seen as power and a way to transcend the mundane aspects of life. You throw all that in with modern technology and the way that certain politicians have figured out how to use that and harness that for their gain, and also where politics has become a little bit more about theater. And that's not really that new. It's been building for some time. But when you throw all that together, we have to figure out how we're going to inhabit that space and live in it, all right? And uh, so these are some suggestions for you. But those are the ways ahead for us in obedience to God, allowing this God to challenge us and say things to us that we don't particularly like. Everybody good with that? All right, let's pray. Father, we recognize there's so many things that are beyond us and there's so much that's not said here today and that can't be addressed. We need your help with this, but particularly help us just in our stance to you that we be willing to listen, that we turn away from ourselves and we freely turn ourselves to you to be renewed in our minds. Direct us to fruitful and to fertile paths as we obey you above all else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.